This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. There once was a country named the German Democratic Republic, the GDR, or less formally, East Germany. After the fall of the Berlin Wall almost 35 years ago, the GDR was absorbed into the larger and wealthier Federal Republic of Germany. The territory of the former GDR is often seen today mainly as a kind of bastion of far right and to some extent far left voters while the experience of 40 years of communist society is largely forgotten. And contrary to Willy Brandt's, uh, West German Chancellor Willy Brandt's famous dictum that that which belongs together will now grow together when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, it's not clear that that's actually played itself out. What was life like in the GDR and what became of it? My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. This one's particularly close to my heart because it was the subject of my own doctoral dissertation and first book, and we're very fortunate to have with us today Katja Hoyer, uh, a historian and journalist born in the GDR, but now based in the UK. She's most recently the author of the book Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, published by Basic Books. And she previously wrote the widely acclaimed Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. She's a visiting research fellow at King's College London, a columnist at the Washington Post, and a fellow of the UK's Royal Historical Society. Thanks so much for joining us today, Katja Hoyer. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you. So, I mean, the first thing that I I thought about when I heard about this book was, you know, why now? Uh, What led you to write a history of East Germany at this particular moment? Is there something that, you know, something going on in the world that prodded you to want to write following a book of, you know, that's more historical, I suppose, uh, about the German Empire um, that prodded you to write Beyond the Wall? 
Yeah, so I, there's several reasons, really. One is that I think, you know, over 30 years have now passed um, between the fall of the Berlin Wall and now. Um, and I was kind of hoping that being a generation on now from that and, and having a whole generation of people such as myself who haven't really got kind of a vested direct interest in that history from a, from a personal uh, point of view, who haven't themselves kind of lived through it. Um, would help bring a bit of distance and a bit of clarity maybe to the debate because I think so far it's been dominated by people, East and West Germans, um, who uh, kind of directly grew up in this Cold War context and are therefore shaped by, by it themselves. So that was one of the reasons. Um, another one is that I, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, was born in the GDR, but I was still a small child um, when the Berlin Wall fell. So I was born in 1985 and therefore only five years old when the country disappeared and, and was uh, sort of um, reunited with, with West Germany. And so for me, there was always a degree of sort of personal curiosity there. You know, what was the state like that I was born into that doesn't exist anymore? Um, I mean, that even goes for the city I was born in. It was Wilhelm Piekstadt, who named after the first and the only president of the GDR. Um, and so neither the city nor the country that I was born in um, you can find today on a map and then that curiosity was there as well. And then thirdly, um, myself and several other East Germans, most of them, I think, uh, feel a little bit um, aggrieved is maybe too strong a word, but there is a sense that that history is sidelined, um, not forgotten as such, but it's kind of the footnote or the side story to the to the continuity story that is West Germany. And I wanted to change that. I think it is a a chapter of the German story that's important to tell in its own right. Um, and that was what I was trying to do as well without constantly comparing it to the to the West. Right. So and interestingly, I mean, there's a quotation in the in the book that suggests that the GDR, you know, in a certain sense was not just a German state, that it actually was born in a certain sense in Moscow in the 1920s. And I'm talking about a quotation of uh, a guy named Wolfgang Leonhard, who came to the United States, taught at Yale. Uh, I wrote a book about, I'm not sure that it was ever actually translated into English, but uh, about his experiences as a young communist functionary who kind of ended up, you know, for incidental reasons growing up in uh, in Moscow, in the USSR, as a as a young person, um, but he basically says something about a, a school that had been created for uh, exiled German communists uh, that you know their kids went to. He Wolfgang Leonhard uh, went to, and he said something about you know the history of the GDR began at this Karl Lieb Karl Liebknecht school. Uh, Karl Liebknecht being, of course, a major figure in the early uh, origins of German communism. So uh, I wonder, you know, what did that mean, and and you know how how in what sense might that be true? Well, I picked that quote up because I think there's there's some truth to it, and people often forget that the people who founded the the East German state in in 1949 didn't come out of nowhere they didn't come out of a vacuum they all have backstories they all have experiences uh, that you know shaped them basically their, their previous lives are are important so I start the story a little bit earlier um, and look at communism and, and socialism in Germany as an idea as an, as an ideology um, well before um, you know East Germany ever came into existence because I think it's important to understand you know, with Marx having been a German as well and basically preached the fact that there would be a, a world revolution and certainly, you know, kind of a revolution within Germany 
uh, very soon and that hadn't materialized in the 1920s and in the 1930s despite the calamity of the first world war um, and so many of these kind of german communists um you know were still dreaming about communism socialism as they were battling the the nazis and, and nationalist um people on the streets of of germany in the 1920s and it still wasn't coming about but there was a realization of that dream on earth at that point and that's the soviet union um which became a, a communist state in 1917 and the in the october revolution so when the hit when the nazis come into power and hitler becomes the the german chancellor in 1933 a lot of them kind of feel that they can kill two birds with one stone here by going to the soviet union they'll be safe from hitler and they also get a chance to build up the first um, you know, actual communist state that, that existed at the time. And Wolfgang Leonhard is one such example. He's a young boy at the time, um, a teenager, and his mother is a, is a communist. And she takes him to, to Moscow and, and basically wants to raise him over there, safe from the Nazis, but also in, a, in an environment where he can be schooled in the ideology of communism and that applies to many others. And I think why that's so significant is because the, the those communists didn't find the socialist utopia that they were hoping for in the Soviet Union, but actually the opposite, a, a deeply paranoid um, system under Stalin, um, which suspects all Germans that come to the Soviet Union um, even though the, mo the vast majority of them are, of course, you know, ideologically aligned with the system, um, of being sort of fifth columnists for Hitler, um, people who will spy for Hitler and then feed information back. Um, and so they get very severely cracked down um, upon by the time that Stalin basically rolls out his purges in the mid and late 1930s. Um, of the Politburo, for example, of the Communist Party, so the leadership, nine of them go to the Soviet Union and only two of them are still alive at the end of the war. And that's Walter Ulbricht and um, Wilhelm Pieck, the two sort of early leaders of the GDR. And that in itself, I think, is so significant. I mean, these people have gone through an experience of persecution, of constantly looking over their shoulders, of um, having... Uh, betrayed their own comrades, you know, to save their own lives. Basically, they said that other people were spies, even though they weren't, uh, literally delivering them to their deaths. You know, they, they will never trust anybody again. And I think that's hugely important when they come back to Germany. They get sent back by Stalin to build up um, the, the Soviet zone of occupation. Uh, they don't trust the population there either, or, or each other for that matter. And so that deep paranoia never goes away. And I think that's important to understand if, if one wants to understand why the Stasi becomes what it is. There's almost this idea that this, you know, kind of, it's just a group of evil dictators who come back and for the sake of it build a system that makes everybody miserable and I think it's it's important to understand why they never let go of that idea that everybody's potentially an enemy because that was their life experience up until 1949. Yes well for my my own dissertation research I did an interview with Werner Eberlein who had been as you know the basically the leading Russian translator, because he also kind of grew up in this communist, uh, exiled German communist enclave in Moscow. Uh, and I, when I had the chance to interview him, he had just been a party secretary, uh, sort of dragged in, he said, by Eric Honecker just before the wall fell. Um, but, you know, he had a stroke when the wall fell. And, you know, the world that he knew you know, had simply collapsed. I mean, he he had only known, in a way, a world between that was divided between communists and fascists, 
And I think, I mean, you know, I'm not a doctor, I don't know this, but I sort of had this sense when talking to him that, you know, he just couldn't kind of make sense of the world he was in. And it was quite striking, uh, you know, as an interview for somebody like me who came from the United States and for whom this was all a little bit distant, you know, reality. Uh, but in any case, I mean, I wanted to get back to the uh, issues about, you know, East Germany, some of which you just uh, raised. Um, you know, this sense of paranoia, the Stasi state, state, et cetera. I mean, this is kind of, you know, overwhelmingly the way the GDR is perceived, I think, by people who don't you know, necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and, you know, you, I think, explain this situation in some detail in the book. And it's very interesting. I mean, I hadn't really ever thought about exactly the way they perceive the world uh, as full of threatening kind of people in a way. Um, but, you know, you also have positive things to say about the GDR. And I mean, one of the things that struck me and that, you know, many people, I guess, have uh, observers have commented on is its gender ideology, to use a phrase that I probably shouldn't use right now, since it's misleading. But, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, socialists were actually very committed to uh, gender equality, and that it was not merely the fact that the GDR was in desperate need of labor power. And, and that's why they created all these childcare uh, stations and, you know, ways in which it would be easier for women to work. So maybe you could talk about that uh, issue a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a good point that you just made about, you know, this idea that it was done for for labor uh, reasons. So the idea that, that women were just um, used as uh, you know, basically a kind of ersatz for the for the lack of um, uh, cheap labor from foreign countries. So where Britain, for instance, had uh, people coming from the Caribbean and so on to to help rebuild its its uh, you know buildings that had been destroyed during the war. Uh, West Germany invited people from uh, Turkey and in Italy, and East Germany couldn't do that with its isolated economy. So one argument runs that. Uh, women were kind of used to to make up for that shortage of labor after the war. Um, and that's certainly part of it. But I think um, it is also a genuine part of the socialist ideology. And I think the reason why that's been uh, sidelined a little bit is because the moment you open up that debate, you invite comparison with um, the West German system and with the German system today. You know, and people will make demands along along the lines of more childcare and you know enabling basically women to have families and a career at the same time. And so you know, it's easier to say, well, they only did it for cynical reasons, and and kind of brush that aside. Um, but I think that is just historically not true. I mean, when you look back at at kind of where, for instance, International Women's Day and those sorts of things come from, they're deeply intertwined with with socialist uh, movements in the in the in the First World War and beforehand as well. Um, because it is part of the ideology. And one example I use in the book to show that is a party communique that was published in the uh, party newspaper, Neues Deutschland, uh, where the uh, ruling party basically rants about the way that women are treated in the workplace. It's kind of a long, very modern sounding argument that men aren't treating their female colleagues seriously enough. Um, there's still an argument that women uh, haven't got a head for the hard sciences or for economics um men don't understand that women have a have a kind of double 
tasks there and, and trying to do their jobs and look after the household and you know kind of be be wives and mothers as well uh, and all of that all sounds very modern i mean you could print that if you take the the communist like words out of there basically the the, the register you'd end up with a very modern piece you could print in a newspaper today and people would, would sign that off and say yeah that's exactly the problems and that doesn't sound to me like you know people were women were kind of just chained to the factory floor because they needed cheap workers um, and and it became sort of more normal as well for women as time went on uh, they kind of just expect to be workers and i think that's the, this culture change that they achieved hasn't gone away you still see differences today in east and west germany uh, between uh, kind of female uh, labor for example the, the gender pay gap isn't not only not existent in east germany it's actually reversed women earn slightly more in, in east germany than than their male uh, counterparts whilst the, the gender get pay gap exists in West Germany as it does in most Western societies and that's simply because women kind of don't go part-time you know they follow their careers they find that they find that very important and they manage you know together with childcare basically to stay in their jobs and, and not take long breaks from them and um, which is just a cultural thing that's that's become normalized for them. Right interesting so I mean, I guess this gets us in a way into uh, the question of, you know, the way the book's been received more generally. Um, you know, you've mentioned now the kind of controversy over the status of women in East and West during the Cold War and after. Um, but I, I gather there's a sort of bifurcated reception, or at least it seems that there's a, you know, sort of more positive reception in what we might call the Anglosphere, and that the book is more controversial in Germany. I, I haven't had a chance to sort of confirm that uh, independently, but a you know historian friend of mine who pays attention to such things tells me that's the case. So I'm curious, you know, what what you would say is going on. I mean, is that an accurate uh, you know assessment of the reception in the first instance? And then, uh, if so, you know, what's going on? Yeah, it was really interesting to watch for me as well, because the English, so I wrote the book in English, um, and it came out in the UK first, uh, where it was received very well across the political spectrum. So I was quite relieved to see that because I genuinely intended to write a book that doesn't judge politically, but kind of just you know, explains and analyzes the history as such. And so it was it was interesting to see that from the sort of conservative press all the way to the to the far left outlets, it, it had been received very positively. Um and in Germany it has had a very mixed and very um yeah acrimonious I would say response, uh, both positive and, and negative. Um, and I think that's largely due to the fact that um, it's, you know, it's Germany's history. It's it's kind of something that's very raw still, very emotional. I'm talking about people's own, you know, backgrounds here still, especially people who are, you know, older than me and will basically say, well, I was there. I know what it was like. Um, it doesn't take much one paragraph often you know, for, for somebody to say, um, you know, I, I would have described it differently. And, and why did why did you do it that way? And because of people's own backgrounds, people's own history, there is that raw emotionality about it. I think the other thing is that for a long time, uh, Germany has done its GDR history and still does actually through a state-funded organization called the uh, Bundesstiftung Aufarbeitung, which is like a federal agency whose task it is to look after the, the history of the GDR and, and go through it. Um, but when you look at its founding statute, it basically says its purpose is to uh, preserve the history of the victims of the GDR. So it's a very there's a very specific aim to the way that that GDR history is written in Germany. It's it's kind of like a pedagogical tool 
that we use to train young people today to become democratic, um, you know, liberal citizens. And it's in that way, um, the, the GDR and uh, Nazi Germany are used in tandem to show kind of what dictatorships look like. The GDR is often actually called the second dictatorship, meaning the second after Nazism in Germany. And because, you know, that's the organization where the funding comes from, where the appointments for, for things come from, it's, it's a very specific thing that they're looking for. Um, and that isn't what I did, kind of sitting outside, looking at, at the GDR with a different eye, with, with a more, um, I would say, with a broader look to telling the, the mainstream story. I'm not, I'm, I've got the victims in there, but because the victims are, um, on the whole, the people who were directly, say, targeted by the Stasi or were being shot at the Berlin Wall, uh, they're all in my book, but they're in proportion to the proportion that they, in my view, took in society, and that's the minority. Um, and that's also been uh, you know, a point where people are deeply unhappy with that because they see the history of the victims as the, you know, the history that should come out of this, not the history of the majority that kind of lived their lives in the GDR. Um, and were seen as complicit in the in the system. And because I sort of turn that on its head and, and tell the story of the mainstream alongside the story of the victims, but they become one part and not the, you know, not the only part, basically. I think that's also led to a lot of controversy. But I should say that normal readers, in inverted commas, are kind of, you know, the, the mass of people read the book, uh, tend to be very positive about it. It's got very good reviews on Amazon, even in Germany as well. I get letters from East and West Germans saying, that this is the first time they've actually engaged with GDR history because they don't feel that the constant finger wagging is basically putting a spanner in the works. Um, and overall, I would say that, you know, this kind of idea that it's negatively received comes from the from the reviewers who themselves are part of this organization that I just described, more affiliated with it. I see. So just to clarify, for those who may not speak German, the instant she's talking about an instant federal institute for the for coming to terms with the past, the Aufarbeitung der Vergangenheit. I'm not sure what the exact title is, but something along those lines. Germany is a place where there's a lot of coming to terms with the past. And, you know, this is part of that operation. Um, I guess I'm curious, you know, leaving aside in a way the history, um, you know, there's this famous quotation of Willy Brandt's that I mentioned in the introduction about now that which, you know, belongs together will grow together. And I guess Wolf Lepenis, a very prominent intellectual, said something about, you know, this would take a, a generation I mean, how do you think that process is working out or has worked out? And, you know, what would you say about how successful it's been? I think on the whole, um, you know, a lot of money was invested. Lots of infrastructure was being uh, built. Um, literally billions were invested in uh, you know, things like roads and making the, the uh, kind of making East Germany look um, like West Germany. So now driving back and forth obviously you recognize the difference in architecture but the standard of things has, has improved and um, so have people's living standards so most of the the vectors that you can look at for um you know kind of economic parity uh have actually closed down so there, there's less uh, difference there between east and west what hasn't really changed though is a fundamental um lack of participation of the of the east um, so there's another book that recently came out which contrib contributed to this controversy I just talked about around my book as well. They kind of were seen as one package, if you will. Um, that was was about um, the, the period after 1990, and some of the figures in it are just shocking, really. You've got, for instance, in terms of participation in elite 
positions in society, so in in um, politics and and across economics. Um, about 1.4% of leadership positions are occupied by East Germans when they actually make up a fifth of the population. Um, so that, I think, is a problem because you then get very stereotypical depictions of East Germans in the press um, or in, in films or in the media, basically, where people feel you know, that they're not taken seriously, they're not part of the discussion. Um, even when I'm sometimes invited to talks and, and on panels and things, quite often the, the suggested sort of headlines for these talks is things like why is the east still different or you know <laughs> what what's the east like you know it's always kind of this idea you're looking on from the west as the point of normalcy and you're trying to work out whether why the east doesn't quite fit in with that and i think that's that is an image that has kind of stuck with many east germans and why there's so much um acrimony there and i think the other issue as well is that you know when you, you said earlier about the idea of east germany as a land of you know sort of uh, far-right extremism and far-left extremism to some extent um and that that that's often been uh treated as a as a natural outcome of of a people that lived under a dictatorship and was socialized in a dictatorship which I think makes a complete nonsense of the whole thing. I mean, when you if you apply that, you effectively end up writing these people off because you're saying they're just like that. They, they were just kind of raised like that. And so there's no point trying to convince them otherwise. And that in itself, you know, the sort of um, arrogance and the writing off um, that people see in the media and from politicians um, has also been deeply unhelpful. Um, there was, for instance, the the head of one of the largest media operations in Germany of the, of the Springer, uh, press um, was there, there were leaks basically where he said that all East Germans are either fascists or communists and, and he's disgusted by that you know when you have somebody at the head of of a huge newspaper um, and on media kind of concern thinking like that you know it seeps down into the way that articles are written into the way that East Germany is portrayed so I think in terms of growing together I think economically and otherwise that is sort of happening but East Germans still feel in lots of ways that they are being excluded or seen as kind of the lesser Germans not real Germans um, I actually started a book with Angela Merkel who's arguably the most famous East German um, complaining in her last speech in office as German Chancellor that um, even she, uh, her own biography is basically constantly being reduced um, to, to kind of stuff that happened after 1990. And even she feels that she can't talk about her past, um, you know, despite being arguably the, the most successful East German um, post-war story, if you will. And even she doesn't feel that she fully kind of arrived and was taken seriously despite being Chancellor. Interesting. I mean, you know, as you talk about this, I guess I wonder, you know, do people see this, that, that is to say, the underrepresentation of uh, East Germans in uh, leading positions in the society? Um, do people see that as a problem that that needs to be addressed and that can be addressed in some ways? I mean, given some of the debates we've had in the United States recently, you know, I wonder about kind of an affirmative action program. I mean, exactly who the beneficiaries would be is not entirely clear, uh, as it is not really in the case of the United States. But uh, it does strike me that in a way, this population is treated as, uh, or, or is in de facto in a, in a situation, in a position that is, you know, the product in a way of kind of historical discrimination. And I just wonder, is there a discussion about doing something about this? Does it sound anything like our affirmative action debates? 
I think there is a debate this year that's partially due to the fact that this other book I was just talking about by a guy called Doug Oshman and mine um, have created a, a massive public discourse about this um, in the light of these political problems that, that we just talked about because there are elections in three of the East German states next year and people are very worried that the far-right um, alternative for Germany, AFD, uh, will win in those states. And as a result of that, you know, mainstream politicians are increasingly worried. And so I, for instance, get a lot of emails these days from politicians or their their aides kind of saying, you know, can they can they talk to me about this and is there a way out of this? And I, I don't know how much help I am with that, but at least there's now a desire, you know, to work out what's actually going on and what the problem is. Um, I think previously there hasn't been much understanding for that simply because um, East Germans are only a fifth of the population. They weren't previously seen as, you know, kind of necessary to win elections um, and therefore too small a group to kind of worry about. And some people have tried to um, make a case in court about discrimination. So, for instance, there was, a, I think, a woman a few years ago who uh, was actually sacked from her job with with a, a kind of a, an insult along the lines of, you know, you're just a stupid Aussie or, or something along those lines in East German. Um, and she kind of tried to make a case, you know, that she was being discriminated upon because of her being East German in the same way that you would be able to do if it was based on her gender or ethnicity or religion. Um, and uh, the courts shot that down. There were three other cases like that. And, and again, you know, the, the, the kind of ruling was upheld that you cannot be, um, that basically being East German doesn't count as being a minority and therefore you can't um, claim that you're being discriminated. So your boss has got every right basically to turn around and sack you and say, you know, or, or not employ you and say, you know, I don't want any East Germans working here, which which has apparently happened. Um, so I think, you know, there's, it's a slow change that's happening now because of the political circumstances. Um, and it remains to be seen whether uh, that will last and how long it will last. But certain debates do include, um, you know, kind of the idea of having a quota of how many East Germans you would have or, or things like that, which I'm not entirely sure that that would be helpful because I think it's more of a symptom than the cause. I think the idea that, you know, you could suddenly say, OK, let's have like three East Germans in each government department or whatever. I don't think that would necessarily solve the problem um, kind of that that lies behind that. So it wouldn't solve the problem or it would generate a backlash in the in the process? Mm, both, probably. Um, yeah. I mean, people would also feel a lot of people feel they they just do not want to be labeled as East Germans. Like the guy who's, who's mm -hmm. written that other book, Dirk mm -hmm. Oshman, said that, you know, he's he comes from Thuringia. He's a German. Um, so, you know, either of those two apply to him, but he doesn't see himself as an East German as such and therefore doesn't want to be labeled with that either. So that's not really the you know, the sort of right way to stick a label on people and say, you know, you should be in this position because you're East German. It's, it's more a way of measuring whether that, you know, kind of societal process of, of growing this society back together um, has worked. So I think it would create a backlash as well as being uh, not particularly helpful because it doesn't solve the the issue itself. I mean, the fundamentally, the issue is that the GDR created a society that was supposed to be classless, so it basically got rid of of the middle classes, um, both culturally and economically. And you see that in all sorts of, you know, economic vectors, like people have less, um, for instance, people inherit less from their parents. They've got less financial stability. Um, therefore, for instance, they are, they are less able to 
say, for instance, go to university or pursue a, um, a PhD afterwards because they're just economically in a precarious position and can't do that. Um, they don't have the mannerisms, you know, to impress somebody at a, at a job interview in the same way that somebody who comes from a different background um, would do. Um, so it's just an overall issue that I think there needs to be a more complex solution to. Very interesting. Well, uh, it's really been great to have a chance to talk to you. That's it for today's uh, episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Katya Hoyer for giving us the opportunity to hear more about her recent book, Beyond the Wall, uh, A History of East Germany, and to hear about the sort of controversy that it's generated. I also want to thank Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for letting us use his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm-hmm.